Welcome to the Tech Journeys podcast. Today we're joined by Simon Thompson. Simon is the software development manager for Cambridge based UL. We'll be having a chat with Simon about his journey through technology from where his initial interest to where he is today. And then we'll be moving on and picking Simon's brains on everything to do with technical interviews. How you should be structuring that CV on upon application, how you should be preparing for the interview, how you should be presenting yourself during that interview. Going to be a lot of value in this episode, so tune in, sit back, relax, enjoy. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button for future episodes coming up. Hello, Simon. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Thanks. Welcome to the Tech Journeys podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'll just do a quick introduction. So for anyone listening who doesn't know me, I'm I'm Sean, uh, Director at uh, Progress Talent. Today we're joined by Simon Thompson. Simon is the Software Development Manager for Cambridge-based UL. And I'm, I'm not sure how long I've, I've known you for since we first spoke, to be honest with you, Simon. How long have you been with UL? Since about 2015, I think. 2015, so about five years ago we first spoke, I think. Yeah, about that. Yeah, when you joined the business, right, okay. So today we're going to be having a chat with Simon, just having a, a talk through his kind of experience, his journey through technology, and then we're going to be picking his brains a little bit on everything in relation to kind of tech interviews and the interview processes going into technology roles. So how I usually like to start, Simon, if you don't mind, just give us a quick overview of uh, kind of yourself and, and what you do today. So I'm obviously the, as you mentioned, sort of software development manager at UL um, at the moment, and that's sort of a a culmination of a path from being sort of a senior developer in UL going through the sort of the roles that lead up to being dev manager, which is again similar to what I did in my previous company where I was there for a, for a long time and up obviously as a development director at that company. And prior to that, I'd obviously done the whole sort of growing up with computers and going to university and, and things like that. So it's one of the things that my very first sort of computer memory is bit of a poor one. It's pressing the break key on a BBC micro that my dad had just spent three hours in the program on and deleting the entire thing. So not the greatest sort of introduction to the tech arena. Just have your dad go, what, what have you just done? But that was sort of, must have been about five or six, I think, when that happened. And so from that point on, I was sort of interested in, in computers. They were always around in our house. Um, oh, really? Right. So you got into it from a really early age then? Yeah, so we had BBC Micros and we had some Sinclair Spectrum kit around as well. I was a computer programmer, had been since sort of like the late 70s. What, your father was, sorry? Sorry? Your dad was, did you say? Yeah, my dad was, was a right. And my mum was a mechanical engineer, but had also done technical right, parts right, of her. Okay, yeah. As a family, we'd always had technology in the house. And so from sort of starts... We sort of had the BBC Micros, where initially that was just playing games, but came sort of the ubiquitous computer space battles, computer battle games um, books that taught you how to write a, a game on sort of the, the BBC by type all these, these words in and press go and you'll get a game. And then there's a great big picture of, wow, that looks amazing. And then obviously when you actually run it, it's a couple of lines just appearing on a screen, simulating some ship or something, doing something which always was a bit of a disappointment, but didn't really stop you going back and doing the next one. And so for a few years, basically, yes, I messed around with BBC Micros, obviously starting to get into things like um, Logo, 
where you to program the little bot that would then go around and draw things on the on the floor. Um, we didn't have a bot at home, but we did have one at the at the school, which was a good thing. So you could just draw pictures and things like that. And after that, it's sort all of like into things like Amigas and then early PC stuff. Basically, sort of <laughs> my main memory of early PCs is spending hours and hours trying to get the extended memory set on DOS to give you enough memory to run whatever game it was you needed, modifying the sort of auto-exec back and config sys to make sure you got 632k of memory and every change you made that should have given you more suddenly dropped you down to 610 you're going this is ridiculous you'd spend two hours trying to set it up and then 30 minutes playing the game before you got called to dinner and things like that it was the things but it was it was generally sort of sort of first experience i had of actually trying to sort of debug issues yeah you see it's trying to get things to run beyond that i started playing around with things like qbasic which again was on the sort of early pc experience i got so that came in in about sort of 91, 92. So I probably picked it up in 93-ish, so probably when I was 13 or so, and started playing with QBasic. And then after that, moved on to things like Visual Basic fairly soon after that and started just creating little programs. I'd watch my dad do stuff who, by the time, was doing stuff in C and in C++, what he did. And when he, he'd sort of like do little sessions with me where he'd sort of do some sort of, Easter egg inside the product that he was working on. And so we just create an interesting progress bar or, or something of that just sort of to keep me interested. Yeah, yeah. Because at that point, C was somewhat beyond my abilities, but I was genuinely interested in it. So at, at that point, you would have been in high school at that point, wouldn't you? Yeah, so I was probably about 13, 14 what, age. What was it like um, academically to kind of pursue those interests what was it like at school with kind of courses and things like that so at school we had sort of the, the standards on maths and science stuff and studies but we didn't really introduce any computing um, stuff until the sort of sixth form so when right. I was in 17 and that's when I started using things like VB6 for, for, for the first time I'd used VB3 a little bit but not much but then started using VB6 there and one of the great things about that was a the computer teacher was also a maths teacher. Yeah. And so we approached certain things from both a maths and a computing point of view. Yeah. So things like the Tower of Hanoi problem. How do you approach from a maths problem? How do you work out how many turns that you actually need to do on any number of rings in the Tower of Hanoi program um, or Tower of Hanoi um, problem? And effectively, the answer comes out as two to the n minus one. And then the question from a maths point of view, prove it, prove you can't do it in less than two to the n minus one. And so I did it from that angle. And then from the program angle, okay, fine, how is the most efficient way of doing the actual algorithm to show you what all the moves would be for doing this? And we went through various methods of that, sort of ending up with things like recursion and doing it very, very simply. It's basically when you get to recursion for the Tower of Hanoi problem, it's about four lines of, of code to do it. And so you can do it very, very efficiently. And so it's very interesting to see somebody present those problems from both a mathematical and a programming point of view. Dr. Cowsley was his name. I never knew what his first name was, but he was, he was a good guy. He was at, at school, but for doing that, he was very interesting from that. And it was around sort of that time I started doing my first bits of work for the company that my dad worked for at the time, which was obviously software people, but then yeah. I became an employee of. I did little bits, um, little VB programs or sort of administrative tools, 
not parts of the core product, but maybe support tools for the support teams and things in that company, which will be programs for them. Um, so can, can I just ask there, was, you, was your dad the owner of um, software for people? Or yeah, he, he was the offer, right, owner, right, right. One, of the, one of the owners of, so there were, it was a bit of a, um, a pun, playing words, software for people, but there were four people who set it up. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> HR software, so it was software for people. Even to this day, this pains me somewhat. <laughs> it's great. One, a few years later, they actually went to an award ceremony and they became the communist software company because they were called out as software for the people. <laughs> so, uh-huh. yeah, there are plenty of jokes around that, that name. But yeah, so I'm sort of slightly ashamed to say I've never had a, a newspaper round because all the jobs I've ever done really have been yeah. technical ones. And so, yeah. I was only sort of like probably just 16 when I started doing the jobs for software people. And yeah, so we did sort of the computing stuff at school. And then I decided to do a computer science degree at university, which is probably one of my fairly large regrets, to be honest. Oh, really? I went into that course and came out of that course knowing pretty much what I had done when I went in from an educational point of view. Right. Really developed was off my own back. It was such a, it was aimed at being a sort of a mixed ability course and it was it brought in a lot of people who like, had no experience at all yeah. and was for them and therefore not really driving people who were already experienced um, in software development forward at all. It also rather interestingly decided to use ADA as its first introductory programming language. So this was right on the crossover when BB6 were going away and bb.net and c-sharp were coming in and yeah they chose a language which outside the military has almost no application whatsoever and still doesn't to this day although it is still used in, in a lot of military things and also actually civil aviation things like um, airplane software is tends to be written in things like ada mainly because it's a very secure language it, it stops you making mistakes although right. i don't think possibly boeing are using it yeah so unfortunately sort of way it introduced that and then they flitted between languages. So during certain modules, I mean, we'd do Prolog and other modules would do Lisp and Unix Batch and then Java and VRML. And basically, as you go through the years, you just chalk up a number of languages that you've done for three months. Yeah. Not really any sort of level of expert in. And at this time, I was obviously learning C Sharp and doing C Sharp programs and, well, cross between C and C Sharp in my own projects. And so, therefore, I was going in a completely different direction to what they were doing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, like, your story kind of reinforces one of the age-old arguments that there is within the, like, especially within the recruitment and technology industry at the minute, which is we won't hire them if they don't have a degree. <laughs> it, that, that, that's something that we kind of deal with quite a lot. And you have, um, you have two sides to it. There's always companies that are adamant that they've got to have a degree and then there are companies that understand that especially people who start coding at such a young age like yourself is it just money down the drain sometimes and can people get themselves to that level without being in academia yes i mean just skipping ahead slightly i pretty much remove academic requirements from any job description i get my hands on yeah 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 um not only is are the academic things somewhat irrelevant but it's also a barrier to people who've done a career change yeah things like that and from a sort of diversity and inclusion point of view that does somewhat adversely impact women quite a lot who possibly moved to a more technical arena as a sort of career change and so therefore 
it can be quite um, exclusive to start putting educational requirements on things. And, and in general, yes, it doesn't really prove very much other than that you can deliver enough work to get a degree. Yeah. Uh, my brother, who followed a very similar path, sort of growing up to I did, went and did a civil engineering course at university instead. He particularly did, consciously avoided doing a software-related course um, and did engineering, really enjoyed it. He still ended up in a, a development job going forwards, but it allowed him as his first position coming out of there actually to be picked up by a company who were looking for engineers who could program rather than oh, program yeah, yeah. about engineering. And so it got him a more interesting experience coming out of, of university than, than what I did. If I had the choice again, I'd probably go back and do something like either engineering or possibly even something in the sort of law arena or something of that sort, just to get a somewhat broader experience of the world rather than funneling my entire life into related yeah. uh, <laughs> topics. Uh, you'll have to uh, you'll have to get a part part time job in the evenings, just doing a paper round, yeah. just to get a, get a feel of it. Yeah, so it's it's interesting because sort of at various points in my career, I have thought, is this the only thing I know how to do? Yeah. Um, and it has sort of led me to some interesting training courses for, for various things over, over the years that have absolutely no relevance to it, just to prove that to myself that I can do them. Yeah. So it, it's, it is a bit strange. But yeah, while I was at university, I actually became a part-time employee of Software for People um, as a sort of an applications developer. Um, so that was in 1998. And then through university, I sort of did a year out in, in industry again for the third year, which was full-time at Software for People, then back at university. And my final year project was effectively something to benefit the company. So at that time, nobody trusted sort of the Windows web servers or anything, and the company was developing its, its first web product. So my project there was to create a sort of a screen system for a custom web server to do it, which on coming out of university went straight into the next version of that, that product. So it wasn't all bad. I got some time to focus on some stuff that then actually benefited the company I went to work from right, okay. to work for the next number of years. But after that, yeah, I stayed at Software for People for quite a long time. How long were you with uh, Software for People? So as an employee, I was there from, 20, no, from 1998 to 2014, but I had started doing bits and pieces for them from 1995. Yeah. It was about 18 years in total. Right, okay was there so for the first half of that i was just an application developer in the latter part of that a web developer as well but for the early years it was all um, sort of c sharp c bb stuff that was legacy and still around but then yeah, later on it became sort of web technologies sort of um versions of asp and then spx and obviously all the html css etc javascript and then in around i think it was 2010 no, sorry, 20, 2006, I became the development manager, effectively when my dad retired, or is partially retired. He was still the development director there, but that's very, very part-time. And I, I sort of became the development manager of the sort of small development team that we had. Um, and then in 2010, he left altogether, and I took over being the, the development director. And, and sort of, we, there was only three of us on the board, so you had sort of, quite a lot of visibility of, from, what, from a business point of view of what the impl implications of the things that you were doing in the development and technology arena. Yeah. And so that was sort of my first experience of dealing with rather large budgets and things like that and when you get to seven figures and 
and things like that, you start saying, oh, heck, that's a lot of money. <laughs> so how, how big how big was the business at that point when you started taking on kind of more managerial responsibility? So software people were never a particularly big business. I think at that point, it, sort of, it, never, it was around sort of 12 to 16 people most of the yeah. most of the time. And I, th- I can't remember what it was at its biggest now. It, was, it sort of ebbed and flowed a bit. Yeah, yeah. The market, the market changed on those sort of things. And the development team size was sort of fairly static. Again, it wasn't particularly big, so four or five people type of thing. But in general, it was sort of a, a sort of a very small niche group. But we knew what we were doing. It was all very waterfall because it was sort of HR software and yeah. payroll software delivering to certain dates. And we didn't sort of, at that time, it was all sort of on-prem installations. So there wasn't a sort of a fortnightly deployment or anything of that sort. And so, it, yeah, it was all, all very waterfall. And uh, the early point in that sort of sense, agile was a fairly dirty term as well. Sort of, it was more sort of in the in the realm of throw anything out and fix it later, yeah. rather than doing central initiative development. And so, it was was somewhat late in the in the um, twenty teens that we actually started moving to agile in that. So, being a bit more agile in that process. How did you find the transition going from uh, kind of being an application developer and a web developer to taking on responsibility for other team members and kind of managing six-figure budgets? Um, what, what was the what was the kind of transition like for yourself? Difficult because a lot of it actually I didn't get rid of the existing responsibilities. We weren't right. big enough to necessarily hire people to be able to take on all of those roles. So in general. We, I sort of had, still had to do a lot of the day-to-day development and things like that, even through sort of development director role there. Yeah, um, it, it was it was a good learning experience. I did pretty much everything there. I sort of did the development, I did the management, the director, I did customer liaison for various things, did the technical writing for some of the stuff as well. It gave me a very good grounding for knowing just what all the roles in the development arena are. Yeah, and things like that. And so. Um, when it came time to, to leave that company, I sort of decided I decided I'd achieved what I could there and it was time to do something new. And I sort of said, okay, fine. I don't want to leave them in the lurch. So I sort of gave them nine months notice. I mean, my contract was like eight weeks or something. <laughs> I will, I will, I'll do it. I'll give you nine months notice on that. I ended up working 11 months because there was a project I wanted to finish before I left because I didn't have anything else to go to at that point. I just yeah. made that it was time to do something different and so when I left there I had no intention to go straight into another development or managerial or anything technical role and so I spent sort of the the end of sort of 2014 and the sort of very early bits of 2015 sort of just enjoying being a dad because I'd had a, a kid a sort of year earlier and so I spent time with her and basically sort of playing around a bit of what do I want to do and sort of did some courses in things like food management and running sort of businesses and things like that and so I saying well what sort of thing do I actually want to do I even got a personal alcohol license so um I got okay, a, what, sorry? a personal alcohol license oh so really <laughs> if I want to but it, it's one of those things I sort of went through sort of that phase of okay fine there are some things and do I want to try and turn any of my hobbies and um, which at that point I was and I still am very much into board games at one point did you um you had a little bit of a brewery grow going didn't you I'm I'm not sure if it was, was you, did you have the license to sell at one point? I did have a license to sell. I never actually went ahead with it, but what oh, I was, did you not? 
to actually start a small sort of cafe slash bar yeah and thing possibly around sort of the board game theme there'd just been a couple of sort of board game cafes open in the country one in oxford and one in london and i was thinking i like that sort of thing i like the people and doing things and um do i want to do that and i spent a bit of time looking at the opportunities sort of in north hertfordshire bedfordshire cambridgeshire and there wasn't really anything that i could sort of take on and and basically make a good show off with the resources that i had available to me at that right. time and so then at the beginning of 2015 i said no i actually better go and find a proper job again mm-hmm. um, at that point applied through yourself to and um, what was credit 360 yeah which was an interesting experience applying for that because it was a much bigger company than software for people was but it had a lot of the same problems so it was we'd got, gone through that process and sort of Credit 360 was sort of just moving from a sort of waterfall to an agile process. I mean, it, it had sort of two weekly sprints and scrums and everything, but it still had a capacity plan rather than a sort of backlog. So it was still, it was still waterfall, really, for, for the most part. But so, yeah, I was just going through that um, transformation. And then UL purchased Credit 360. Yeah. In general, the business had gone out for investment because it sort of got to the stage where its product needed a bit of investment and instead of the investment UL bought the company and that was just as it had rebranded to CR360 and then became obviously UL. Yeah. Uh, a fair amount of change over there. It wasn't particularly traumatic as a change over sort of UL didn't really know a huge amount about software companies at that point. And so to a certain extent they left us alone to do what we were doing. So yeah, when I was I was at, by that point I'd sort of become just kind of becoming to the point where I was looking for the next stage beyond the senior developers to back to either that team lead role or that had been mentioned or, or something else. And so Credit Suisse had the, the concept of a product architect. And it was sort of a cross between what you consider a classical architect in software engineering and somebody who just simply understood from a base level how the product worked in product terms rather than technical terms. So sort of bridge the gap between pure platform architecture and, and product design. And, and so we had one of those per team and we spun up a fourth team and we needed another one of those. And so I applied to get that position and I, and I got that. I got that. And so I was quite happy in that role and I was sort of doing it, I think, fairly well. And then we started getting some bits of issues regarding the, the development management that, had, that was in place at the time. The development manager who hired me met previously to, to that and we'd had some new, and they hadn't really chilled with the team that one um, and it came to a bit of a head and those managers left and it was a case of well who's going to to fill that gap and having somebody coming from outside hadn't worked when I was looking around the team saying who else here actually has the the experience to take that role on looking around and not seeing anyone I'm thinking oh heck it's me isn't it Um, (laughs) so I, I applied for that role fairly confident that I would get it it was Fairly gratifying to find out later that a couple of other people had also recommended me for it. But yeah, that's why I started that role. When did I start? That, that was, I think, beginning of 2018. So yes, yeah, so I've been there for about two and a bit years by that point. So, so the beginning of 2018, I became a development manager. And that's what I've pretty much been doing ever since, that I still have the development management role. The organisation has changed slightly in structure. Um, UL is a big multinational company, yeah. um, as is the way with big companies. They reorganise on a fairly regular basis. 
so we will get less pressure for health, safety, and sustainability. We became, after a while, UL Environment and Sustainability. And then uh, software engineering within UL now is actually part of, sort of a global software engineering entity. So we're trying to, to leverage the entire sort of strength that software engineering has within UL worldwide to, to build better products. So it's a very interesting time within, within UL. So there's a lot of cross-team collaboration and things sort yeah. of on the horizon sort of share technology and services and possibly even giving people the opportunity to to work in other units to, to experience different things yeah it's, it's it's all quite good fun at the moment don't get me wrong there are there are always um, things that are irritants but in yeah. general i'm quite happy with what i do i do miss development and with a young family at home i don't get as much time to do stuff in the in my spare time so I am slipping behind a bit in my technical knowledge, but I'm sure one day on the line I will yeah. revisit and, and rectify it. But okay. for the moment, I, I do what I do, and I'm pretty happy doing it. Fantastic. Uh, no, to be fair, that sets the scene really, really well for kind of the, the second part of the chat. Yeah. Like the reason that we usually have the initial chat is to kind of give people a bit of background on on who Simon is, understand like your journey, the kind of... Uh, challenges that you've faced and things like that and then as you know from the discussions that we've had we'll start kind of digging into some of the knowledge that you could share that other people could benefit from and I think your your idea on this topic was just brilliant the reason is the way the the way the market is at the minute is absolutely dire people are struggling to to find work and any way that they can anyone can help them in any way especially kind of giving people confidence when it comes to interviews and things like that is uh is yeah it's brilliant it's like gold so we discussed having a chat around kind of recruitment into technology roles so do you want to give me a just a quick overview of why you thought that would be a good thing to kind of have a chat about and, and we'll take it from there yes yeah, so i've hired i've hired quite a few people i've already interviewed 100 200 people now um, yeah. in the things and that ranges from people entering the sort of term field as sort of junior developers or junior quality assurance analysts um, in product owners, that sort of thing, right up to being involved in sort of director level and, and above sort of interviews for, for people. And you can sort of see what the people are thinking and how they're presenting themselves across those levels and how it changes over time and they get obviously a bit more confidence in their interview process. And you're sort of looking back and saying, well, what is it that's failing the people at the entry level? Why are they not prepared for a life in the workplace and sort of getting themselves a job? This was more prevalent to a certain extent in the software people than it was at UL because we hired more people at the sort of entry level at software people than we do at yeah. UL today. But from sort of what I've, I've heard and everything else, and sort of what I've seen in other roles, it's still a predominant problem that people come out of education not knowing how to get themselves a job. Yeah. How to present themselves, how to conduct themselves in an interview, what's expected of them when they actually join a company. I don't think that the educational system is helping them at all. When it was sort of things like job centres and things like that, again, they gave people no help to present to themselves at all. And it's frustrating that, yeah, that <laughs> we have 
every every year hundreds of thousands of people and trying to enter fields and not knowing anything about how to do it yeah and yeah if i can give some people who are just thinking about coming into a technology role not just necessary development but it's sort of product management product owners the other roles within development sort of um, scrum masters those sorts of the roles they all come back down to a number of things that are fairly simple for people to actually master but without being told that that's what people are looking for you're left on your own to do it now if they come through an agency i hope you guys give them some pointers on, on some of these things but if yeah, people are applying for things directly they do tend to suffer from not presenting themselves very well and uh, yeah that's sort of what i just wanted to, to cover to sort of see if we can help people out a bit on that, that area yeah. So where, where should we start on that then? Because obviously when we when we had a chat, you thought this was something really good to have a chat on. So I'll, I'll kind of let you take the lead on this one. Yeah, so I mean, obviously the first thing that you get to see from anybody is in general a CV yeah. from point of view. And as technology has proliferated, so has the size of the block you get at the top of somebody's CV saying how many technologies they know. And now, particularly with somebody who's just coming out of education or has just been doing their own projects, you know that they can be possibly two or three technologies that they can genuinely be significantly proficient at. Yeah. Um, but then you see a block that lists 20. You say, right, okay, fine. This is simply telling me that you're trying to black yourself into a position and then you're going to get discounted from that. Cut it back to what you know and explain what you know and why you know it and where your learning path is and where you hope to go. If you mention technologies in a block or skip in a block at the top, you need to call them out in your description below that. Yeah. To say how you've employed those technologies. And it doesn't have to be in a commercial arena. It can be in educational things or personal projects. But you can't simply list a whole long line of, of languages with no context whatsoever because we get a lot of CVs to look through. And if there's no context for any of this stuff, it's going to be assumed that and you're just throwing down anything that you spent two weeks playing with at university. And so therefore, let quite considerably more in, in this case. Cut it down to what you're comfortable talking about and so that you can justify what you did. So that would be the, the first thing to say is structure the CV to actually show off your strengths, not simply everything that you've, you know the name of. Yeah. And the other thing is there's, no, there's nothing wrong with tailoring your CV to the position that you're applying for. Yeah. So if you're applying for a company that does, does SaaS software or a company that's doing on-prem software, talk about how your current experience applies to those environments. It might not be that you did a huge amount of, of work in your current positions or your educational stuff that directly applies, but you can start to, to pull things out and say, well, this is what I've done. This is where I think I need to grow to do it. I think this is an opportunity that would enable me to do that. Employers are just as interested in what a potential candidate's growth path is what they want to, to achieve over the next few years as what their current skill set is because the last thing you want is somebody coming in getting up to speed over six months and deciding that they actually want a different career path than leaving and doing something else if you've invested the time in getting somebody up to speed you want them to stay with you for at least a couple of years yeah. therefore you want to know that their progression path is one that correlates with what you can offer them it's one of those things, it's, it's bad for an employee to hire the wrong person, but it's also bad for a 
the other way around to, to take the wrong job and everything. So it needs to be a discussion to yeah. the future of this of the company is what is good for both the employer and the employee. So yes, explain what you want to get out of this, what this job would offer you, what you what you see yourself doing after a couple of years in the role type of thing. And you can do that through the yes, providing the CV to say these are the technologies that I want to pursue. Most job descriptions list some technologies that are in use or sort of are in place and are being phased out or everything. And therefore, I would sort of say that one of the other things to do is try and avoid looking like you're stuck in a certain technology, possibly even if it's, especially if it's one that's on the way out. Yeah. I mean, so if you've got a number of, of sort of bits apart through your history of saying, well, I use this technology here, I use this same technology here, I use the same technology again in this position, it sort of makes it look like you sort of gravitate to, the, to that technology. You're not necessarily looking for anything that's, that's going forwards. Again, employers are looking for people who are able to adapt to new technologies, but are not afraid to get their hands dirty with the legacy software, the legacy functionality that they have in place that needs some love and attention. So, so yes, yeah, so tailor it. Don't belabor certain things, but make sure you cover anything that you're calling out in detail. So I think sort of that's the point from a sort of a CV point of view. Yeah, when you get to an interview, there's sort of mistakes again that people make there are sort of no background knowledge from the company you're applying for. You're effectively unable to distinguish what you did from what your company did. So it's all very well yeah, saying, yeah. we as a company did this. Well, that, that's fine. There were probably 30 of you. What did you do? Be able to talk about what you did. Don't try too hard to impress and just obviously generally be prepared. But a lot of it is about the fact that if you've gone through to an interview, somebody thinks you can do the job. Hiring managers don't have time to throw away interviewing every person that comes through the door. I mean, certain sort of... Um, guaranteed interview schemes aside, people are very selective about who they're going to put through to interview simply because of time constraints. Therefore, your CV or any technical assessment that you've done getting up to that point has sort of shown that you can do the job. And therefore, your job at the interview is to not talk yourself out of getting the job. Yeah. So at that point, you've got to go through sort of a number of processes. One is effectively respect the room. Don't just talk to the sort of who seems to be the most senior in the room. In most cases, there's an interview panel. Talk to them. Get, you know, it's supposed to be personable. You need to show to them that there's somebody you can work with. There's far more about personalities in an interview. Than in yeah. Skill set. Just on that, so can I, I get your opinion on something? So one thing that we tend to advise people when going into an interview is we always say to them, I appreciate this is easier said than done, just relax. Try and just be yourself and let your personality come across. And one thing, one piece of advice that I've always given people that has always, it depends on the manager sometimes that's interviewing them, but we'll always say to them, if you see an opportunity in that interview to, to have a laugh or maybe a joke with that manager that you're speaking to, just make sure you take it. Because knowing that you will fit into that team and this is someone that they're going to enjoy working with every day can often be just as important as the technical skill set that you're bringing to the table. And sometimes you, it, it all depends on the manager and how well you know the manager that they're kind of interviewing with. I mean, what, what's your opinion on that? 
Yes, I mean, it, it's, it certainly depends on how the interview's gone up yeah. until that point. I mean, if, if you feel that it's been quite a stressful experience, then don't try to make jokes because they won't come out right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it will fall flat. If, yeah, it's a case of, well, I think that I'm, I'm doing okay here, let's sort of te- um, test the water. Are these the same people who have the same sort of mindset as me? Then, then that's not a problem. But yes, in general, managers are aware, are aware that interviews are probably the most stressful experience they're going to have in the employee process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Disciplinary processes, should, <laughs> heaven forbid, anyone has to get into those. But that aside, actually getting a job is very, very difficult, particularly if you're already out of work for some reason. Yeah. Then it's vital to you to get a, a job because you need, you need an income. And so very much aware that it's a very stressful experience for it. I try to avoid putting any exercises in it that require you to dig through your memory, pull things out, because when you're stressed, your sort of long-term recall of things becomes a bit difficult. So in general, any sort of exercises for the technical things like prior to the it's say, role, or if it's for things like a quality assurance role, try to do things that don't actually require you to, to write or take things from memory, but are simply based on your sort of instinctions. Show me how you would test this already stressful. So I try to avoid that. I appreciate not all managers do. Yeah. That you do technical tests in the role, in sort of in the interview. That sort of gets easier as you go through the, the roles because as you become more senior, you, you have an inherent level of confidence in your own ability. And you say, well, if I don't get this one, I'll get the next one because I know I'm a good developer, or I'm a good quality assurance analyst, or I'm a good scrum master, or product owner, or whatever it is. But that can be very intimidating if you're new to the new to the field. And so a lot of it is basically a case of anything you're being asked is unlikely to be unfair. So then the same as any exam in school or anything of that sort, just make sure you understand what you've been asked for. If you don't understand, ask. Yeah. There's no point in them giving you 20 minutes to do something, coming back after 20 minutes, and you say, on this, was it the right thing? No. Make sure you know that before you're given that time. Because, it's, yeah, it's going to be a case of show me that what you've said on your CV is you. And that's, to a certain extent, the only other thing you're trying to prove in the interview is that the person sitting in front of them is, is the person who submitted that CV. They are the yeah. same person. You're not, you're not masquerading as somebody with a skill set you don't have. So you, you've got to prove that to a certain point. And even that's, to a certain extent, in some companies, a bit optional because companies that are hiring a lot of people can afford to take certain risks and you'll, they'll find out very quickly if you've lied on your CV. Yeah. You deal with that within the first week or two of you getting into the employment. So there's no point in lying about any of this stuff. You will find out. So therefore, a lot of this is simply about, yes, can we work with you as an individual? Do, you think, do we think that you're going to fit in well with the team? Do we think that your growth pattern is something that we can support and that actually inherently will make our team processes better? And that's pretty much across all of the tech roles. It's not de- development specific or anything of that sort. It's all about basically, basically building that rapport. I have hired people before where it was a case of, I don't really care whether you can do the job as I've advertised or not. I want you in my company. Right, okay. If, I'll find a role for you because the way you've prepared, the way you've presented yourself, the whole attitude that you've exuded makes you a person I have to hire. Yeah. The, the fact is you will make the company better by being in it. 
And that's the point. If you can get to the stage where you present that sort of attitude, it's not arrogance. There's a difference. You, you can't go into these things being arrogant. But if you can go into them being showing that you're the sort of person who goes that extra mile, takes care in everything, makes sure that all their projects would be high quality and that sort of thing, not necessarily going to finish them in half the time of anybody else because quick and terrible is far worse than perfect and late. Yeah. It, it, it's one of those things. So provided that you can give that confidence that anything that you do you're going to put your best of efforts into and that you're going to engage with people and generally make the whole work experience better for other people it is priceless i mean I, I would i would always hire somebody with that attitude and a slightly lower skill set over somebody with an ex extremely wide range of skills but with a, a less confidence that they're actually that person who will go the extra mile for you and make sure that everything is is good yeah 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 so it's it, it's yeah it's something but but yeah back when you're sort of just starting out that's your strength because you don't have a wide range of skill sets so portray the fact that you're a diligent careful engaging wanting to learn person that's going to be make the company a better place for everybody for the next n years and the one i'd say most important thing about an interview is to know something about the company before you go into the interview. You will get asked, what do you know about X yeah. company? And worst is nothing at all. Second worst is, well, I had a quick look at your website. Yeah, yeah. No. Right. Hey, okay, fine. Well, I know that you're involved in this arena and that arena, and that's been sort of like the company focus for X sort of percentage of the, the time. And that you're currently sort of targeting these sort of arenas. Again, that is stuff that's generally available on people's websites. But it's going from the point of view of saying, I opened the website to prove you're a real company, to I opened the website and actually read through some of the content yeah. on it. Um, you get a lot of people who simply regurgitate whatever's in the header of job descriptions. Right, okay, yeah. You know, yes, I know that about my company as well because I wrote it type of thing <laughs> something that's beyond what i've already told you yeah like that and again people who are able to do that you can then start to see if that resonates with them as something that they're genuinely interested in ul is involved in the environments um, sustainability and safety arena and a few years ago people in technical arenas wouldn't really have cared very much about that it was a sort of recurring job that the main thing that got people through the door to interviews for us, from their point of view, was that we had car parking spaces because yeah. they wanted to drive there. But that's changing. Now we get to the stage now where actually people are saying, well, actually, I do care about sustainability and environment and everything else. And the fact that they've actually now sort of seen about what UL does as a company allows us to talk a bit about that in the interview and say, well, okay, fine, well, what do you think about that? And it doesn't mean that you've necessarily got the wholly right end of the stick on this. I mean, you, you can be saying that there's something about it and it's not quite what we do or it's sort of same arena but sort of wrong focus. That's, that's fine. It, it shows that you've gone and looked at enough to put some effort in that we can have a discussion about yeah. it. And then we can see, well, fine, does that, what does what UL does resonate with you as a person? Do you have any interest in there that, that might help drive it and might help facilitate conversation within the rest of the business, not just the technical arena? Historically, we had a situation that the dev team was interested in solving technical problems, 
and things like the implementation team were actually interested in sustainability and safety and things like that. And therefore, it was fairly difficult to communicate between the two because they had two very different language sets. But now you're getting a much more blending of that. You get people from in the implementation side who have far more technical interest. Um, things like um, sort of big data and AI have made sort of technology become far more interesting to, to everybody. Yeah. Everyone's far more interested. So they're coming from, the, from that side coming across with technical interest. And you've now got people in the technical arena saying, well, actually, I do care about sustainability. I've got a family. I'm worried that the, the world's going the wrong way. Yeah, I appreciate that you can't fix it on your own, but the fact that you're working with companies to help them identify ways that they can produce less waste, less carbon, et cetera. Actually, I understand that, and that's quite interesting to me. And so therefore, by taking time to learn a little bit about the company, you can actually start sparking another conversation that to a certain extent isn't about the job role at all, but allows the interviewer and the candidate to actually develop that rapport to say, fine, we can actually have a conversation about something other than the work and understand each other and where we go and what our sort of thought processes are. That, that means that I know that we'll get on as a group and that we won't have any major frictions here because in general we're a company who, who likes people who are prepared to talk about things. Yeah. And so, so that's sort of how I, how, I, how I feel that, yeah, the knowing something about the company or knowing more than something, knowing a, a, enough to be able to hold a conversation about what the company does, I'd say is one of the, the most important things. Okay you at all i think uh we got we had a few questions sent in when we uh we mentioned that you were going to be coming on with us we uh we pushed it out to the tech journey slack community and put some posts on linkedin and things like that but to be honest with you you've kind of answered them all as you've as you've talked through so i, feel I rambled in certain places when i, I <laughs> care about some of this stuff and it frustrates me yeah you can to be fair, you, you can hear you can hear the passion that you have for it which is uh which is always a good thing I know that, again, when I've, I've seen people who've come into position, come into interviews, and have just sort of fallen apart, and you think, I, I, that's such a shame, because yeah. you had everything you've said so far to me in sort of a telephone conversation I've had, or seeing your CV, indicates you know your stuff. Yeah. It came to it, you were unable to actually do it. And so I've sort of spent the last few years trying to change my interview style to a point where it is indicative I'm here as somebody who's in, almost as a therapist type of thing of like talk to me about what you do and um, basically try and say okay fine where does that lead you how do you think that will help us as a company and try and let try and give them sort of starters to, to get what's in their head out so that they can actually say what they're thinking rather than just basically saying don't say something stupid, don't say something stupid, don't say something stupid throughout the entire interview, which yeah. in a few interviews I've done from the other side is a case of, well, yeah, I sort of felt that at that time. And it, it's, it, is, it is very debilitating to, to get into that position and to just basically get yourself to a position where you go into the interview and say, I know I'm going to get this job. It's one of the things that there's nothing to stop me getting this job. I just now need to present myself as a human. Yeah. The people on the other side of that desk and basically share in our humanity and basically prove that that we're all the same species and talk the same language type of thing yeah thanks for tuning in hope you enjoyed that 
Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you're notified of any future conversations with leading technology managers. If anyone would be interested in coming on the podcast, feel free to reach out at Sean, S-E-A-N dot Rhinus, R-A-G-A-N-I-S at progress hyphen talent dot com. <laughs>